Xiang. Welcome. How are you? Good. Thank you so much. I'm really so, well. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today. So you have a different background. How did you become a VC? Oh, I mean, sort of by accident, I suppose. I mean, I've been in and around financial services my whole career, um, but basically coming out of my last startup, um, I had made the decision to move to Singapore, where I'm originally from. I'd been away from home for a long time, and it seemed like time to come home. Um, and I was looking at a bunch of different things that I could possibly do once I moved. And uh, my friends, Eric and Elizabeth, said, you should come work with us. And I was skeptical initially because I was moving to Singapore and they were in the Bay Area. And so I was like, how's this going to work? I mean, you guys are going to be here. I'm going to be there. Like, you know, does this make any sense? Um, and they said, don't rush to any decisions. Just come hang out with us. You know, you've already quit your job, right? You're in the process of moving. Just come hang out with us and see what it feels like to work together. And so we spent the summer together, you know, looking at companies, writing checks, and um, it was really fun. And so, um, you know, it was an opportunity to work with my friends. It was an opportunity to sort of start something new, which is to start doing some of the international investing within, you know, a structure that had already been set up. Um, and it was a chance to work with really early stage founders and sort of fresh off of six years of building a company. It seemed like I had some hard won lessons that maybe could be useful to people. So yeah, that's kind of how it happened. That's great to know. What is your favorite example of a founder hustle in fun fundraising? Oh, example of hustle. Um, I think like there was, um, there was one company where I, you know, I had sort of seen it come in and it was in a space that I didn't really love. Um, like a really challenging space. And so I sort of said, uh, you know, pass, I'm not going to take the meeting. Um, and then it came in through a different way, you know? So like another founder that we knew was like, Hey, I met this guy. I think he's really interesting. You should meet with him. And then I was sort of like, yeah, I already saw this deck. I'm not really into it, you know? And then it came in a third way. You know, one of our LPs was like, Hey, I think you should meet this guy. And so I think there is this aspect of like, If you can get enough people to say, hey, I think it's worth the time to meet um, and vouch for you, then you have kind of like a higher shot at getting the meeting versus just like, you know, the deck cold. Um, and so, you know, this guy had found like lots of different ways to get in touch. Um, and I don't like, you know, I don't like to think that we gatekeep, right, with You know, you need to have a warm intro because we obviously look at everything that comes in cold through the form. But sometimes, you know, the deck is just a very sort of cold piece of collateral. You know, you don't get the full depth of the conversation and things like that. And so if enough people are sort of saying like, hey, at least take the meeting, you know, um, then, you know, it, it sort of seemed like they were hustling to kind of get in front of, you know, in front of us. And it wasn't just sort of like, hey, they spammed a bunch of VCs names that they found and were like, let's just see what happens, right? They were sort of really deliberate as to kind of saying, I want to meet with this person because I think it could be a good fit for their their fund and their thesis. How do you make decisions in early stage investing? Is it intuition or a database? Um, I think it's a little bit of both, right? So I think there's the sort of standard check boxes that people look at, right? Which is like, hey, what's this market size? What's the traction? Uh, You know, when you use the product, like how good is the product? Um, 
And then I think there is a little bit of intuition or had a recognition, which is like, you watch how co-founders behave with each other. So when someone is pitching, does the other co-founder look engaged or do they look bored or worse? Do they look dismissive of what their co-founder is saying? Um, like, what does that interaction look like? And I think one of the biggest sort of sources of, you know, startup failure is co-founder conflict. And so you kind of want to see how they get along. And not to say that they need to agree with each other, right? Because that you're always going to have um, disagreements. It's how do they resolve those disagreements? Are they respectful of each other? Um, but if you sort of see dismissive behavior between the team at this early stage, then that feels like a red flag where you sort of say like, you know, I don't know about that. Um, I think there are things around the cap table like if the cap table is super messy already at an early stage um then you can kind of foresee that there may be challenges down the road that have nothing to do with the business but really everything to do with the cap table and their ability to raise um what else is sort of like so i think there, there are things that come from experience where you've seen a couple of things where you're like hey this probably doesn't end up well um and you say like i'm gonna avoid that um and then there's things that are just like the standard sort of checklist of like hey, is this actually a really big market? Are people willing to pay? You know, does the product work? All those sorts of things. Uh, but I, I don't know. I mean, I think there are people experimenting with algorithmic investing at the early stages, you know, where they sort of scrape like, hey, like what's the traffic? You know, what are the mentions? Are people talking about this on Reddit or TikTok or whatever? And sort of say, we're going to like algorithmically write checks. Um, but I think there's so much more to a company than just the initial traction. Um, I think it's sort of thinking about what's the vision of this person for this business? Like, can they think about what this thing is going to look like in five years? Have they thought through, um, you know, why have things in this field not succeeded before? What are the historical pitfalls of this industry and how are they sort of thinking about navigating it? And I think that's hard to glean without actually talking to the person and try to get a sense for how they are. You <clears throat> mostly do the first check. So probably um, you are the first investor on their cap table. Um, do you look for the spreadsheets such as expectations? Um, I look at projections more to see how they think rather than as sort of any prediction of what the future will look like. So I think most projections in early stage companies are wildly, you know, they're acts of acts of fiction right what is mm -hmm. it you know so they don't know it's made up um you can put whatever you want on a spreadsheet but i think it is interesting to look at a model just to sort of say well what were your assumptions here like why do you think this is going to happen you know is this like oh well there's eight billion people on this earth and if we can only get one percent penetration this is a gigantic company or is it like hey I've actually sold 10 people. I know my sales cycle takes this long. I know my average contract value is this much. I don't have churn yet, but you know, industry churn looks like this. So this is kind of what I model. It's more, I think, an artifact to have a conversation with the founder over rather than um, any sort of real predictive type of. What is the <clears throat> startup metric is most overvalued? So I think it varies by business, right? Uh, I think... Probably waitlist 
Hmm. Or like, oh, I have a wait list of XYZ. So you're like, that's kind of interesting, but you don't really know what the conversion of the wait list to actual real customers is. Um, downloads, right? Like downloads is still kind of, um, okay, they've downloaded it, but then do they do anything in it? Do they come back? What What is your theory of how that happens? So I think things that are like too far away from actual transactions, you just can't fool yourself about it. You as the founder, right? Like you have to be honest with yourself with like, do you think this is a real number? Like, and how hard are you trying to push that versus like getting closer to um, an actual transaction and proof that somebody wants the thing that you're, you're selling. Can you share a pitch that initially seemed full of easy no's, but you ended up investing in and why? Um, yeah, I mean, I think we try to be pretty disciplined about this, but like sometimes, you know, it really, people kind of break the checklist. Um, so we, we don't typically do a lot of hardware types of things, but we are actually an investor in an electric motorcycle company in Vietnam. <laughs> and I think I just say that to you and you started laughing. Right. And it's like, that sounds really expensive. That sounds really complicated. That does not sound like software. Um, yes, that's true. Those, all those things are true. Right. Um, but when I met the founder, like it was just, he was so bright and so impressive that, you know, it was like, I just want to see what he's going to do. Um, and so this is a guy who was trained as a software engineer, um, went to school in the U S on scholarship from the Vietnamese government, um, decided he wanted to come back to Vietnam, but you know, he was like, I need to work on something that's meaningful. And so Vietnam is one of the, I think top four markets for motorcycles in the, in the world, right? I think Indonesia is another one. India is another one, China, and there's a lot of pollution, right? And so he said, you know, he had noticed over the 10 years he was away that every year when he went back to see his family, the air quality got worse and worse. And so he's like, well, what if I built an electric motorcycle that was cost competitive with gas, but, you know, actually was like a high performance machine. And he quit his job in the U.S. Like, you know, he was working as a software engineer in Silicon Valley. He watched YouTube videos, okay, for like 10 months and basically built a prototype in his garage, okay? Basically taught himself electrical engineering, mechanical engineering. He built a prototype. He gets on Shark Tank Vietnam, okay, with this prototype. And he sold his, he pre-sold his first hundred motorcycles. Um, and so, you know, you see, you, you sort of like just... And yeah, it was like a crazy, it was like a crazy thing. And, you know, I'm trained as a mechanical engineer. Like, I don't think I could have taught myself all of that in 10 months watching YouTube videos. You know, like I went to university for like four years, like, and I've never built a motorcycle from scratch. You know, like it, it's, it's like non-trivial. And then, you know, I went to visit him in Vietnam and he had convinced this university to basically give him a free building where he was assembling these motorcycles. And he had used all of these like 
very affordable college interns, you know, college engineering students as interns to like help him in this. And not only had he done that, he had convinced two of his American classmates to quit their jobs and move to Vietnam to do this with him. And they weren't Vietnamese. It was like, you know, a Chinese American guy and a white guy. And, you know, there they were, they were all living in a house, assembling motorcycles together. Okay. And so it's one of these things where you're like, there's a big market, but it's pretty capital intensive. It's extremely complicated. And, you know, but this person has managed to like do something quite cost effectively, has attracted talent, is very like ingenious, has like marshaled his small resources to do a lot of things. Um, and so that I think is something that kind of like, yeah, on the face of it, you're just like, no, why would I ever do this? But he got he got motorcycles into market with less than a million dollars. That's a great story. You you could buy them in Vietnam and. You know, I, I went and I rode the bike and it is a, I'm, I'm not even like a motorcycle enthusiast, you know, like, um, and it's, it's a wonderful experience. Like it's very smooth. It's like a nice, you know, and it's like his attention to quality. Like if he gets something and it's not at the quality bar he wants, he will figure out how to get it there. So he tests every battery cell that he buys before he puts it into a bike. And he's, you know, automated the process to do it. And so I went to see his factory last year, you know, and so they don't work at the university anymore. They've moved to like a proper, you know, factory and, you know, they're putting things off the line and, and it's, it's crazy. It's actually insane what they've done. Are, are you the first check in this company? I'm, I have to check with, I might be the first institutional check. I think he had some angel checks um, and then he's raised way more money since then, obviously. Um, and, you know. You know, that that's been really important to the story, but but it's um and it's you know, it's still early. They've released their second model, so they've got two different models out now and you know, obviously many other things have to come together, right? There's the charging infrastructure and all that sort of stuff. But you know, if you believe electric is the future, you know, all these sorts of things are pointing in that direction, then, you know, he has a he has a chance. But it's still it's still a long shot. So I wanna caveat that's the story with with this while you are telling this uh, <clears throat> company you mentioned about the checklist what is your decision checklist look like oh you know market team product traction fundraisability so that i think is a that's a later add to it which is like how capable do we think this person is of raising funds uh because that's an important skill um and i think that's something often for folks who come from more nascent ecosystems, they don't have as much experience raising money. And so that can be challenging for folks. Uh, <clears throat> you have also started in NerdWallet. What was the experience over there? So I'm not a founder. I'm an early employee. And it's um, and I was there until $150 million in revenue. I think a couple things. One is startups are just really chaotic. And that's okay as long as you're growing. So, like, I think if you come from more structured environments, like corporate um, or financial services, and you go to a startup for the first time, you may feel like, why is everything such a mess? Like, it's very, because you know, so many things are happening. And I, I think my learning was like, it's because you're running really quickly, right? And you don't have enough people. And so you're always like trying to push forward as quickly as possible, because that's your advantage. But as a result, 
things are like pretty chaotic and you just have to be comfortable with change, right? So it's, you know, the business was growing, the company was growing so quickly, you know, we would have to do a reorg like every six months because, you know, the thing that worked six months ago wasn't going to work now because, you know, just the problem was different. And I think humans find change uncomfortable. It, it's very unsettling. You want to know what's going to happen. And then when you're like, oh no, like, okay, you used to report in here, but now you're going to report in here because we're trying to optimize this different communication stack. Um, I think that it can be really unsettling for people. Um, and so you need to like, A, be comfortable with it yourself, but you also need to hire people that are comfortable with it. You know, I think that's like, one is just like chaos. And then the second I think is really the importance of focusing on what is important. There's like a million things to do in a startup, but really only one or two things are existential. And so do you know what those one or two things are? Does your team know? Are they focused on the one or two things that are existential? Because part of the chaos is like, you need everyone to row in the same direction. And so I think being really clear about what the important things are and then being spending the time and effort to communicate what the important things are to your team and making sure they're all aligned on that is important and measuring it. You need to know like, okay, I'm expending all this effort, whether it's like ad dollars, it's people's time, whatever it is, it's, it's, you know, code. Is it actually doing the thing I want it to do? Yes or no? How do I know it's working? Um, if it's not working, we need to stop it. Um, so I think that's like an important thing. Um, and that's something we look for in founders is can they prioritize properly? Are they working on the right things? And then I think the last thing is like probably just empathy. I think I have a lot more empathy for founders because um, it's it's really hard. Building a company is really, really hard. And generally things are going badly. So like, you know, when we write a check, we try to tell people, hey, we understand that most of the time things are going badly. So you don't need to pretend that everything is going great. You know, you can be direct with us. Um, so, yeah, not particularly profound. Uh, those are some learnings. How many startups did you invest uh, since you have started the VC business? Um, we, we've invested, I think we have over 500 portfolio companies. Is the power law game? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that that's true, right? I think the VC is a power law business. Um, and so you do see that where like, you know, you have a couple that go crazy, uh, they grow really fast. Um, and then the majority of things will, you know, go to zero or kind of return a one X. Uh, so yeah, I, I think there's a study on angel list. I think that, you know, shows the like, for like a hundred check portfolio, you know, you can expect maybe one unicorn if you're doing some proper uh, process. So yeah, I think that's the, the, the theory behind our portfolio allocation approach. Are there common factors that uh, in the uh, winning startups? I Yeah, I mean, I think we would like to think there's some formula, right? But there's there's many different ways to make money, right? So I, I don't know if there really is a formula. I think it, it sounds like a cliche, but basically I think one common thing is that they refuse to die. Like they all went through some sort of near-death experience and they basically just refuse to die. And partially we tell people, hey, survival is a prerequisite for success. So don't die. Um, and And maybe there is for folks who are like, 
I don't have an alternative or I'm not willing to entertain the alternative. Um, and they figure out a way to like make it work. Um, but see, there's probably some sort of survivor bias in that too, right? Because there are probably businesses that should be shut down and they should not sort of torture themselves beyond the logical conclusion but we don't talk about those, right? Because that's not fun to talk about, right? You want to talk about the people who are like, oh, beyond all odds survived and 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 hit 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 a home run. But I do think that our most successful businesses have founders that are very resilient and keep pushing through. And, and... I think the other thing that I would say is a commonality is that they're all, all the founders are really good at learning. They all learn incredibly fast and they're open to feedback. So you invest globally across the US, uh, Canada, Southeast Asia. What excites you most about the startup ecosystem in Southeast Asia? Yeah, I mean, I think the macro stuff in Southeast Asia is really encouraging, right? So in terms of demographics, right, it's a very young population, uh, urban penetration, uh, digital penetration is really high. Um, it has relative political stability. Um, and so, you know, I think Indonesia is like probably one of the largest markets for, you know, Facebook and TikTok. Um, and so you just see like, it's a young population, young people adopt tech at a faster rate. They have smartphones. Um, they have reasonably affordable data. And so you know, you can see that change being driven by the youth population. Um, and so that just stuff happens faster. Gaming, right? That's like another leading edge for like adoption mm -hmm. of technology um, and the spread of ideas. Um, and so that's, I think, one thing is sort of the macro piece. I think on the talent piece, you know, COVID brought a lot of people home. So you see a lot of these returnees, you know, and they were Indonesians, Vietnamese, Singaporeans, Malaysians were educated abroad. Maybe they'd worked for several years abroad, but then they came home during COVID. And then they were like, oh, I like being home. Like, what can I do here? Let me start something. And so they bring their experiences and their networks from other ecosystems in. Um, and that helps to level up uh, the ecosystem as a whole. So I think that's really been interesting. And then I think the other thing is that with the geopolitical tension between the U.S. and China, you've actually seen a lot of Chinese entrepreneurs come to the region as well. And they obviously bring experience from like, you know, one of the largest markets in the world, operating at scale. Uh, across people with lower income. So it's very relevant experience to be bringing into the Southeast Asia ecosystem. Um, and then I think the last part is capital. Like this ecosystem actually has a decent amount of capital in it. Um, and so, you know, when the capital and the talent and the market opportunities sort of collide, then you start seeing people, you know. And we've had our first wave of exits, right? So Grab and Gojek and C and Bukalapak. And so those... Those people are recycling through the ecosystem as well. Um, and so that's just like our first wave of recycling, you know, versus the Valley, which is like seven, eight waves, right, of all that talent going through. And we're just really in our first cycle of them. So I think we're kind of in the early innings of um, Southeast Asia's uh, growth as an innovation ecosystem. It's a cultural difference between these countries while you are investing and also during the investment period what do you see, see different, different kinds of entrepreneurs? Do they look similar? I mean, I think at the core of it, founders are optimists, right? So I think that's a similarity you see across markets, right? You have to be a little bit crazy to start a company. Um, otherwise, like, why would you sign up for all of that pain? Um, you, you need to have a belief, right? That is like slightly irrational. Um, 
I would say like I don't know if it's cultural. I mean, maybe it is, which is I think often I find Southeast Asian founders are a bit less willing to tell you bad news. Um, they want to tell you good news, um, and so you need to spend time building the relationship so they feel comfortable telling you the bad news. And I think part of it is the nascency of the ecosystem is that a lot of people just haven't seen scale yet. And so I don't know whether it's they don't dare to dream that big yet or you know they haven't seen it. So it's like hard to think about what that might look like. What advice should you give to the startup founders, especially who faced rejections from the investors? Um, I mean, rejection is just part of life, right? So you're going to get rejected a lot and you don't need everyone to love your thing. You just need one person to love your thing. Um, and so fundraising is a sales process. So just treat it like, you know, you've got a funnel, you've got leads, you're pushing them through the sales process. Um, I think that's kind of part of it. And I think that like VCs are human and fallible, right? Just because they said no doesn't mean it's a bad idea. It all like it's a data point for you to consider, but it it just may mean that like they don't understand the market you un the way you understand it. I think I often tell people to do the thought experiment of what would they do if investors didn't exist? Like, you know, would you just give up and go back to your day job? Or how, what other solutions might you find for the thing that you want to do? Um, and so I think some people get really caught up in the exercise of fundraising because so much of the content online is about fundraising. But, you know, I tell people, did you start a company to raise money or did you start a company to make money? And so hopefully you started because you want to make money. And so then I think the first step to making money is like, okay, who's a customer What can I make for them that's going to make them pay me? And the cost of software, making software today is so low that, you know, I actually think people can make a fair amount of progress without raising money first, just to prove to themselves, really, like, do I have something that someone's going to pay me for? Um, I just wrote a small check to a company where the founder had been working her day job and building and selling nights and weekends with her brother and she sort of set herself a goal that she wasn't going to quit and go full-time in the business until you know they had hit a certain ARR threshold to prove to themselves there was a business here and so this isn't like the 90s right where you need five million dollars to buy racks before you can ship anything so um I, I think like for most people kind of in the software space like You can make a lot more progress than you think without, you know, first having to go. Because when you don't have anything to show, you're basically asking people to like, hey, take a bet on me. I have nothing, right? Like, And so that's like a really hard ask versus saying like, look, I made a thing. I have 10 customers. They like it. Here's what they say about it. They're paying me. Then it's much easier to be like, hey, make a bet on me. So I would like to, to, to founders or fundraising, I always say put yourself in the investor's shoes. Would you give you money? Um, and if not, then, you know, say, say, why? Like, what do I, what else do I need to validate before I think people should give me money? So is there a dark side or untold truths about the venture capital system in U.S.? Which I mean, I'm sure there must be. Uh, I mean, I think if you think about the history of venture capital, 
it started with like, you know, the Department of Defense and, you know, it, back in the, you know, stone ages where people were making, you know, control chips for rockets and weapons and, you know, storage, semiconductors. Like if you kind of go back and you read the history of the Valley and, and, and venture capital, it was that you were raising money because you had some upfront capital expenditure. And then the belief was on the back end, once you, you know, achieved your technological breakthrough, you had, you know, basically almost zero marginal cost to sell things, right? That's the payoff profile of a venture capital investment. And I think in emerging markets, that's not always true. A lot of the times in emerging markets, people aren't necessarily pushing technology breakthroughs. They're saying, I'm going to run a tech-enabled service, and it is going to be more efficient than what exists, but it doesn't have that same characteristics of like, you know, you have like 100% gross margin. You're not selling pure software at the end of the day. So I think this is the challenge with copying and pasting without thinking about what you're copying is that like software fundraising models don't apply one-to-one -one with tech-enabled services. And the markets are different, right? Like the U.S. is like the world's biggest, deepest market. You launch something in the U.S., everyone there has what? What's the per capita GDP there? It's like 60K, right? That doesn't necessarily translate if you're like per capita GDP is $4,000. And so I think like people need to think about that. Like it's less about the fundraising and it's more about like, does this business work in my context? And if it's different, should it be venture capital backed or not? You know, venture capital is a very weird and specific asset class. There's many other ways to raise money that are not venture capital. Um, and so I, I think thinking a little bit about that can always be helpful. What are the books or uh, blog posts or newsletters you recently read, by the way? Oh. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, and I listen to a lot in sort of business history. So I think if you can read or understand more about business history, then you have more mental models to apply to what you're looking at today. Um, and so I really like acquired a lot of deep dives on iconic businesses. They've done a lot on like NVIDIA, TSMC, but also like consumer businesses like LVMH, Costco. And they talk about, you know, okay, what was the distribution strategy? What was pricing? Uh, how do they think about competition? And so I think those are all kind of like interesting mental models around um, business. And I think businesses, I mean, my new thing is, like, is a like a business is a box. You put a dollar in and you want more than a dollar to come out the other side of the box. So how should you design this box? What's going on inside this box, right? And I think the more you can be a student of business, then the more appreciation you have for what makes a good business or a bad business or a mediocre business. And then, I mean, I'm a nerd. So I really like this economics podcast called Odd Lots, where they discuss like current economic trends, like you know, why is the cost of natural gas going up right now? Or like, why is there a blockage in Long Beach port? Like what's happening with shipping? Um, and so that's like a little bit more current affairs-ish, but with an economics lens. Um, so yeah, I generally read a lot, re read and listen to a lot of like business history books. Do you still uh, teach in the university? I don't. I don't. I used to teach a class. Uh, it's a lot of work. Um, and so I, I don't do that anymore. Um, I I help out sometimes with uh, 
selection panels for their incubators and accelerators at universities. Um, and I mentor at a couple of universities, but I, I don't teach a class. If you go back uh, when you graduate, advice you should should you give your younger yourself oh man take more risk i should have taken more risk i mean i mean but i think everyone has a different situation right so i mean i was a foreign student in the u.s i needed a job that had a visa to stay startups don't tend to give visas if they're very early you need to work for a bigger company that will apply for the visa for you right um but yeah i mean i think i i probably could have taken more risk earlier in my career you know i didn't I didn't do a startup until my 30s, right? And that's like 10 years I could have been doing startups, right? So I think, yeah, I think you obviously like take more risk. You should um, when you're earlier in your career. And like, oh, the other thing I wish I had done more of is um, I didn't realize you could write small angel checks. Like I thought you needed a lot of money to do angel investing. Um, but if I think about all my friends that started companies, like I should have just written five K checks to all of them, you know? Um, so yeah, but that's like another aspect of taking risks, right? Is like, uh, because if you think you want to be an investor, I think you need to actually put money on the line and you need to feel the pain of losing it. And that's part of the learning process. Yeah. And thank you very much. This has been absolutely fascinating discussion. Thank you for taking your time. to share your insights and experiences. Thanks for having me, Barack. Really appreciate it.